Hello, and welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast for Edgewood Church in Danville, Illinois. This week at Edgewood. Uh, I was thinking this morning, this is, uh, we're down a little bit in numbers today, but for those who've been here a long time, this would have used to, this would have been a big Sunday, right? Um, I, I heard something this week. You guys, have you ever heard of the Barna Group? They're the, one of those groups that does surveys and studies all the time, very reliable source. Um, they've done some studies through all that we've gone through with the coronavirus and everything and all the stuff that's with that. And they have, they're, they're estimating in America that one in five churches will not reopen its doors after this is all over. They're also saying that churches across the board have seen a decrease in the numbers of people. Now, I'm going to say, when I heard that one, I was like, not here. (laughs) We've seen an increase. And I can't help but think, I don't know, I can't help but think that part of that's just the reality that we've been faithful to say, let's do this, right? Let's do this. Let's be here. Let's do this. Let's dig into your word and uh, be faithful to what God says. But uh, I did think that was an interesting element that one in five may not reopen. Uh, what a sad, sad statistic that is. Um, all right. I'm going to really quickly review, turn my clicker on here. Um, let me pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I pray that you would be with me now as I dig into your word uh, to reveal, Lord, hopefully your truth I pray that you would guide and direct by your spirit um, what is being said today. pray that you'd open hearts and make them ready and receptive to hear what is being said. In Christ's name, I ask this. Amen. So, very quickly, review. We're talking about God's community, okay? I've said this almost every week for the last five weeks, I think. God's community. It's the only community that is truly God-focused. It is the only community that is bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ died for the church, specifically. And so here's the reality. There's only one organization on this planet, only one community that is truly God-focused and started, founded by him. And so all the things that we might get involved in in this world, there's nothing that compares to this organization that was started by Christ himself, okay? That's the basis. What we've been talking about then is what does this community look like? What do we actually do? What do, what do we, how do we sound? What do we talk, how do we talk? What, are, what kinds of things, how do we interact with the world? All those kinds of questions. And so I was talking about doing church the Thessalonian way because we're in Thessalonians and Paul's talking about this at the end of Thessalonians and this is what he's telling that brand new church, this is how you ought to be. He started with, and I'm going to start with the leadership of the community, uh, the biblical view of leadership, what does it look like, but more specifically, how are we to treat leadership in this community? The answer to that was in verses 12 and 13, which say, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of the work, be at peace among yourselves. So this is respecting and esteeming them, lifting them up. Leaders are to be laboring among you, they're over you that they're admonishing you, right? Next part we talked about was the ministry of the church. I talked about that August 16th, the core idea of what is ministry. What is, what is it that the, okay, so here I am. I'm in the ministry. I'm up here. I'm preaching, teaching the word. But as you know, 
Paul says, God has given to the church pastors, preachers, teachers to equip the saints, that's all of you, for the work of ministry. So what is your ministry? And that's summarized with um, this next verse, verse 14. Um, and we urge your brothers, admonish the idle. So there's three parts. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So warning, that admonishing the idle is warning the disorderly. Then it was encouraging the discouraged. And the third one there was actually help the ones that are disabled or disadvantaged. That's what we're to be doing. That's your ministry in the church. That's what you ought to be doing. Overall, we ought to be patient with everybody. Next, we talked about uh, the actions of the community. So, and this one had really do with how do you respond to the world? Okay, so how do you respond to the world? So the, we had this one here, actions of the community. What do you do? Um, verse 15 says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So there's no vengeance seeking from God's community. That's not how it works in God's community. We're not trying to level the playing field, make sure this happens. That's not our goal. Our goal is then to do good. To who? Well, to each other, but then to everybody, right? The next one we talked about last week was the attitude of the community, for lack of a better word from attitude, the, the attitude of, of the community. From three very short verses, verse 16, rejoice always. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. And then verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So, in God's community, if you're part of God's community, you don't, to, you don't have to go, what's God's will for my life? Here it is, right here. This is God's will for you. What ought you to be doing? What should the attitude be, the approach that you take to life? And there's in all times, in all situations, under all circumstances view that in all these things, you're, you're joyful. You're, you're praying to God and you're full of gratitude for all that he's done. Now we come to this week. This week, once again, for lack of a better term, I'm called the spirit of the community. Um, I'm not gonna clarify why I'm calling it this. I think you'll see once I pull up the scripture. In fact, let's go ahead and pull it up here and read it. It says, do not quench the spirit. Paul says next, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So I wanna plow through here. About halfway through these, these now this is uh, four verses. But halfway through these four verses, I'm going to kind of expand on some. In fact, I have two rabbit trails today. I've planned rabbit trails. Isn't that fun? I have two of them. Um, so they're, they're gonna, we're going to veer off a couple times, but I think it's all connected here, what we're going to see in this passage. I also think that before we dig in, that there is so much more I could do with this path. I mean, there's so many things, so many elements and aspects of this that I would love to dig into, but the more I stay, the more I realize there's, there's one piercingly obvious truth that I think needs to be focused on here, okay? So hopefully we'll get to that. But let's start with the first part of that verse. It says, do not quench the spirit. What do you guys think about when you think of quench? Like thirst, right? Thirsty, quenches it, right? Uh, this word has that same idea. Sometimes it can also mean like if you have a, a fire that's burning and, and you can quench it, snuff it out, okay? That's the idea. Many times in the Bible, the Spirit of God in his people is likened to a flame. So let me give you some examples. Now, let's pause for one minute. Part of what I'm doing today, okay, stepping outside the sermon, this is not one of my planned rabbit trails, this is an extra one. 
Part of what I'm doing today is I have realized in the past 11 years that I've been here, I think, is it 11 now or 10? I don't know. I can't remember. I have created some, this is going to hurt, some, some lazy Christians by putting all of the verses up here for you. Okay? Um, I'll get to why in a minute. I'm still going to do that. It's easy. It's good. I think especially I think of those that aren't familiar with the Word of God, to have it up there so it's easy to see. It's right there. I think that really helps. That's why I do it. I'm a teacher at heart, right? So I want to make sure the truth is apparent and clear. But there's a few of these scriptures today that I'm going to encourage you. In fact, I'm going to encourage you to not only maybe look them up, now, these first few, don't, don't feel the pressure just yet. In a minute, there's some that I'm going to require you to look up, okay? But I also want to encourage you not to be lazy, but to actually maybe take notes. Nate, you go, I, don't have, I wasn't prepared today, Matt. That's okay. Okay? I want you to start thinking in the future. Maybe I should take some notes. Maybe I should jot some of these scriptures down. Maybe I should look at these things later outside of just here, okay? Rabbit trial number one, over and done. There's still two more to come because I said I had two. All right, so the work of the Spirit of God in his people is often likened to a flame. The first one is Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. I'm going to read this one quick so you don't need to try to turn there unless you're really fast. Anybody go to church when you were kids? Anybody in here? Do anybody remember doing sword drills? Remember that? Who, who, does not, who knows what a sword drill is? Oh, some of you know because you're reading, holding your Bibles up. Uh, if, you, if you went to church as a kid, we, we would do that. We'd hold our Bibles up. And then they'd say a scripture and they'd say, ready, set, go. And you put it, I never won that. It was always, for those of you that have been at church for a lot, it was always Becky Howard. She, every single time, every time. I could never. Um, Matthew 3.11 says this. This is John the Baptist speaking. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Who's he talking about? Jesus, good. Uh, he who comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, you see that connection there? The Holy Spirit and fire. He's gonna, that's what he's going to baptize you with. Or Acts chapter 2, verse 24, or verses 2 through 4. Once again, you don't have to turn there for this one. I'm going to go through it real quick. Okay? But if, you, if you're fast, if you're like good with those sword drills, boom, you got it probably already. Acts chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, when the promised Holy Spirit came to those first disciples. So Jesus has been saying, the Holy Spirit's coming. The Holy Spirit's coming. The Holy Spirit, I'm going to give you. In fact, he said at one point, it's good for me to go because if I go, then the Spirit will come. And so for Jesus, even though we go, man, I wish Jesus was here physically so we could talk to him. Jesus said, it's better that I go so that the Spirit comes because then he can be in all of you, Right? When the Spirit first shows up, it says this, Acts chapter 2, it says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested each one of, on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here the Spirit's coming. There's this fire connection. Just, it's kind of like that. It also reminds me of Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. And so those note takers, you might want to write this. This is a great one. 
Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. The prophet Jeremiah says this. He says, if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, right? Jeremiah said, if I'm not gonna mention him or speak in his name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones and I'm, I'm weary with holding it in and I cannot. You hear that prophet saying that? If I try to, even if I try to say, I'm not gonna talk about him anymore, it's like this raging fire inside of me and I, I have to say something. So many times the Spirit's work is likened to a fire. And what does Paul say in this passage? Don't quench it. Don't stifle it. Give it the the air that it needs and and fan the flame. Another passage I read this week, I don't have in my notes, uh, uh, Paul specifically says that to young Timothy. He says, fan the flame of the Spirit that is within you. So Paul is saying, don't stifle this. Don't, Don't quench this. In a broad scope, it could refer back to the previous things mentioned, rejoicing, that's the work of the Spirit, right? Joy, uh, praying, and, and filled with gratitude. It could be referring to those things, but it's more specifically referring to what is said next. So let's look at that next verse, verse 20. Another short verse says, do not despise prophecies. Do not despise prophecies. So this quenching of the Spirit flows into this next one where he says, don't despise, don't hate, don't hold in contempt, don't, don't be disgusted at, don't be annoyed by prophecies. Now, without doing a theological class on prophecy, allow me to instead give a brief talk. So here is the first official rabbit trail, okay? There is truth. Do you believe that? I love talking about this because if somebody goes, well, I don't think there is truth, then I go, are you sure? And they go, yeah, absolutely, there's no truth. And I go, so that's true that there's no truth? And they go, yeah. Then they just disprove themselves, right? So there is something that's true. And they go, well, I guess if you talk, okay, so there's truth. I don't need to debate. I think you guys are much smarter than that, okay? Two plus two equals four. It's true. We are in a church building right now. I know this is true. I drove here in a car today. It was raining. It's still raining. There are other people in here. I'm not by myself. I'm just, right? Okay, here's, here's one. This, this one, 20 years, 20 years ago, would not have been a controversial truth. I still don't believe it's controversial. I'm, I'm a man. True. Okay. My wife is a woman. It's true. Right? You okay? <laughs> I'm embarrassing her. My wife is embarrassed. True? Okay. Thank you. Um, there's only one God only one. It's true. There's only one Savior, Jesus Christ. This thing here is a lectern. If you say, no, Matt, that's a podium, I say, no, you're wrong. This is a podium. This is a lectern. If you go, well, Matt, I've been calling that a podium my whole life. 
you were wrong. That's the thing I like about you. I'm a math teacher. Did I mention that? Did I even teach math? I love math. It's right. It's wrong. Is this right? It's right. Yeah, it's right. This, what's this? No, it's wrong. You did something wrong. I believe truth is very much like that. So number one here in this route trail, there is such a thing as truth. I absolutely believe that. If you tell me I'm wrong, then you're actually admitting that I'm right because you're trying to say something. Okay. Um, number two, truth can be known. Okay, truth can be known. Uh, some of those truths, how did I, think about some of those truths I just shared. How did I know some of them? This is not a trick question. They were taught to me. Good. How else? Experience. Trial and error sometimes. Observation. I mean, there's, there's, I mean you could kind of categorize most truths we're learning through our five senses, are we not? We're, we're seeing, experiencing them in some ways. For most of those truths, that's how it happens. I mean, you could have some people that go, well, I, I got two things and I got two things and I put them together. Now I have four. Okay, so two plus two equals four. And somebody might go, well, that was true this time, but is it always true? And you might go, well, let's try. Okay, two plus two is four. Two plus two. After what? And with a little common sense, you start to go, I, I'm pretty sure this is always the case. You know, we've done it a thousand times and we, we never. And the thing about truth is tr truth doesn't get trumped by how you feel about it. So, so if you go, well, I feel like there's five things here. Well, there's a term for that that's called crazy. <laughs> or double vision, maybe. I don't know. Maybe you just your glasses aren't working or something. Truth is not trumped by how you feel about it. If I have a student who is a boy and wishes to go by the term her, I might have to do that because I work in a public school, but that's not true. If you argue with me that this is actually a podium, I don't care if your great-great-great-grandma told you that's what this is called. That is not what this is. It's a lectern. No matter how you feel about it, that does not make it true. Truth is true. It's not, some truths we have to figure out by science. I don't have a problem with science. I love science, right? Science doesn't go, in fact, my favorite things that you find in history is that 90% of the scientists that were discovering these, these things that have advanced technology and all this were, were Christians that were going, I believe God created the world and I, I want to study it. And, and they did. And they found things, and they learned things, and this, this is how this works, and this is how this works, and everything else. There's, so I love science. But science is limited. If I go over to a rock on the ground and I say, this is a rock, that's science. If I pick it up and analyze it, and I say, there's this much of this in it, and there's, there's limestone, and it's made out of the granite and whatever, I, that's science. If I say it's 500 billion years old, that's a guess. Okay, there's assumptions that are involved. What, what do they know? They know how much carbon-14 is in that fossil or in that rock. They know that. But they make assumptions about how old it is based on what they see in it, which that brings me to my favorite things is when you get scientists that are like, they're convinced they know how to do it, and they go and they get a rock that was made in Hawaii like last week from a volcano, and they go, could you test this and see how old it is? It's two weeks old. You know, 
test it, and they're like, four million years old. <laughs> and you're like, no, two weeks. You missed it. Um, all right. Some truths, though, do not come to us naturally. Psalm 19 talks about how the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims the work of his hands. And I love the, that first half of Psalm 19 because it, it just talks about, I mean, you, you can look out and you, you see things. I mean, I look at uh, the wing of a bee when I'm not too afraid to get that close to it. And I look at it, I go, it's amazing. Or a hummingbirds. You know, it's amazing. And I, like many other people, in fact, I know there's some of these things, those of you who've been with me a long time, I'm repeating things that I've, I've shared in previous messages, but one of my favorite things is uh, uh, in the book, The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin. He actually said in his book, he said, but when I consider the eye, the human eye, with all of its abilities to adjust to light and dark and the contrivances of focus, and he just goes through all these details. He goes, to think that it came about by natural selection, evolution, he goes, in his book, he says, is absurd to the highest degree. And I tell you what, we know a whole lot more about biology, anatomy than he did. And it's absurd to look at anything that is created and think that it just happened or it was an accident. Psalm 19 goes through that. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim the work of his hands. I mean, you can just look out. Day to day utters speech. Night to night utters knowledge. There's no speech or language where his voice is not heard. Psalm 119 begins. But then it never says in that first part the name of who this God is until you get to the second half of Psalm 19 and it shifts. And it says, the law of the Lord Jehovah, his name the, the, the testimonies, the, the precepts. It starts going into revealed truth. There are some truths. This is the third thing about truth I'm saying. Not only is there truth and truth can be known, there are some truths that must be given to us supernaturally. The heavens declare the glory of God, yes, but there's truths about who this God is that he had to say, this is my name and reveal himself to people so that they knew who he was. In Paul's day, just like in our day, maybe even more so in our day, there's a distrust, not with everyone, but there's a distrust of the supernatural, okay? I, I think that's probably true with a lot of people. In Paul's day, it was a little bit different because they, they had a lot of other gods they were following and they, they might go to this certain priest to try to find out if they should plant their crops yet and they, the priest would kill a bird and and sprinkles blood on a plate, and they'd look at the way the bones or something landed. They're like, oh, it landed this way. And they would discern, there would be an oracle. They would discern from it, this is what you should do. This is what the gods are telling me. And there was beginning to grow, even in that society, a distress, like where you had a lot of people going, all you did was squish a bird. What? I mean, that's not truth. <laughs> that's just how the bones landed. That's ridiculous. And so there was beginning to be this distrust of like people saying, I'm speaking and telling you something about God that you didn't discover by looking at the things around us. And so there's a distrust and there were people in Thessalonica in Paul's day that were going, I don't know about this and the supernatural and the revealing of truth that way. And so Paul throws in here, don't despise prophecies. There are some truths that God must 
reveal. So Paul's statement, I'm going to say this sentence twice, Paul's statement was against that sentiment that distrusts and dislikes anything that is connected to the supernatural revealing of truth. Paul's statement was against that sentiment, that thought process, that distrusts or dislikes anything that is connected to the supernatural revealing of truth. Keep that in your head. Prophecies can be about telling the future, sure, but usually they're not. Most of the time, prophecies are about revealing what is true already. Prophecies can be telling you about your own personal state. When you read through the Old Testament, you read the, the prophets. Most of the time, it's not telling you what's going to happen. It's telling you this is who you are and this is what's in your heart. Truth. It's about the truths of what God says about those things. Which brings me to my next verse here, verse 21. He says, but test everything. Test everything. Test is just what it sounds like. Approve it, check it, evaluate it, okay? There's lots of ways you can test something to see its authenticity. Test it, check it. I'm not gonna go into detail about how to do that just yet because Paul doesn't, do you see that? Does Paul tell you how to test it in this verse? Look at that verse up there. Actually, you guys can look this way. You see up there how to do that? Does it say? It doesn't say in this verse, does it how to test it? It just says test it. So now I'm ready for rabbit trail number two, okay? I wanna share with you, I wanna share with you what caused me to rewrite my sermon um, this morning. Um, I wanna share with you my motto. I have a motto. I, I wanna tell you some, of you, some of you that have been here a while, you know this. I, I have a motto. The reason why I have a motto is because when I was in college studying all those math classes, there was a mathematician named Carl Friedrich Gauss, and he had a motto. As his motto was few but ripe. He was talking about mathematical proofs and theorems and things like that. He, he's like, I don't need to have a whole bunch of them. Just the ones I have are like complete, right? I like Carl Friedrich Gauss. He, he was, when he was uh, in elementary school, very young in elementary school, like 10 years old, um, his teacher said, he kept getting done with his math work too quick, and his teacher said, I want you to add up all the numbers from one to 100. And he went and came up in like two minutes and had the answer. Now, he didn't add them all up. He thought through a process of how could I find this answer without literally having to add them all up. And he'd, I'd love to show it to you. I almost did it. But I knew if, if you, some of you be like, I'm not here for math. <laughs> yes, I won't do that to you. <clears throat> but I wanted a motto. And so I, I, I'm not even making this up. I literally, for like several months, I think almost a year, I was like, I want a motto. And I had a couple ideas. I finally, I came to me one day, I settled on one. I'm like, this, this is it. And it stuck. With, I mean, this was, I think, 20 years ago. And it's, it's my motto. It's the thing that, I mean, it's my default. If I'm not sure about something, this is what it is. So my motto is do what you know. Okay? Now, I came to this motto because I just started teaching Christian school, and I saw a lot of Christian school students. It was a really good Christian school, and they had a lot of those kids that were there that were like, here they were, teenagers, they're like, I want to go be a missionary, and I want to, I want to go do this, and they're like, I want to change the world, and they're, you know, you know how sometimes high school kids are, I want to do this thing here, and I'm going to have an impact, I'm going to, I'm going to do something great for God. And I go, that's awesome. Why don't you do your homework? Why don't, is he, what, what makes you think that God's going to go, I'm going to use you in this country to spread the gospel when the one thing he's given you now, I mean, you're a kid, you don't have that much to be responsible for. 
We can make a list on one sheet of paper. Probably your little cheat sheet that you made. Uh, you can make a list, short list. And one of the things on the list would be obey your, the people over you. Obey your teachers. Do what they tell you to do. If they say do your, there's an assignment, you should do it to the best of your ability. According to the Bible, you should do it with the, to the best of your ability. Jesus talks about those who have been faithful in a little, God will give them more to be responsible for. And I said, what makes you think? I said, if you want God to do something like that, let's, let's just start. Crazy idea, kids. Let's just start with do these five problems, okay? You're gonna learn some perseverance. You're gonna learn like doing what God wants you to do isn't always easy. You might have to try. You might have to work at it. And there was the root of my motto. Do what you know to do. Flip side to this, back way back in the day, it used to, and some of you probably have no idea, that Christians used to, I mean, they still do, but Christians even in, in similar circles used to argue and debate over things like music. Like there would have been people that I'm like having the guitar and this stuff, they'd be like, oh my goodness. They would have, you know, just flipped out. Um, and they would have, you know, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it hit me, most of the people I knew, and when I was in Bible college, I, we, we had debates, you know, Bible college students. We thought we knew everything. So we like, well, I think this, here's the Bible. And I started to realize, even then, I'm like, you know what? So many times the ones that really debate on one side or the other, especially the ones that debated for the more stringent, more, the stronger of rules, were very lax in these other things that were obvious. And it started to hit me. Who cares about this part in the middle? If you're not even doing the things that you know to do, what are you worried about these things? So there, hence my motto started to take form. Now, what does that say? But test everything? Implying prophecy. So as God reveals truth to you, we ought to test it. Before I even ever need to get into testing Revealed truth. I'm going to tell you right now, we have got an entire book of tested truth. There is no book on the planet that has been scrutinized more than this. You may not realize this, but there are whole generations of people that, that I mean, there's, there's whole schools of thought that, that attacked the truthfulness of this book, and it stood the test. There's not one thing that anybody's been able to say, aha, see, now it's not blue. Oh, it is. My favorites are, are the times when people have been like, oh, well, this is what we have now, but the, this church, they, they probably back up 200 years ago, they got rid of the other stuff. And you, have, you still have that, the stupid, that stupid stuff going on today. You have people like, well, what about the books of the Bible that aren't in there? You know, there aren't any. What about this one? Nobody ever thought that was one. If you go back, nobody ever thought. I love it when you get, then you'll get somebody like, well, maybe this wasn't even what was originally there. And they'll go, and then they'll find something. My favorite one is when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there were copies of Isaiah that were literally, so they had these copies of Isaiah. And they had to found copies of Isaiah that were literally like 1,500 years older. And the scholars were all like, now we're going to show you. The Bible is hogwash. And you know what they found? Like looking at them, like it's the same. 
that, in fact, just to give you one illustration, and, and um, I believe it's Isaiah chapter 56 or 60, the one of those two chapters, they broke down like it was one of the clearest prophecies of Christ coming. And they broke down the comparison of this copy than this copy that's 1,500 years older. And they're like, there's no word. There was like a word that was spelled differently. But let's be honest, we spell words differently even now. A change in how it had been spelled had occurred over 1,500 years. It was the same. There is no book that is as tested as this book. Read to you a quote here. Among all the books ever written, this guy from a guy named Tim Chaffee, among all the books ever written, the Bible is absolutely unique. It is not just a book, it is, how many books are in here? 66 books, there's 66 books in this book. And one of its most remarkable qualities is the, the complete unity of the overall message despite having so many different authors writing over many centuries on hundreds of controversial subjects Natural explanations fail to account for the supernatural character and origin of the scripture. The Bible was written over a period of roughly 2,000 years, the oldest writings to the, the most recent, 2,000 years. There were 40 different authors. Do you think you could find 40 different authors that were even living in the same time period today that could agree? 40 different authors from three continents who wrote in three different languages. These facts alone make the Bible one of a kind, but there are many more amazing details that defy natural explanation. Some of the authors were shepherds, kings, scholars, fishermen, prophets, a military general, a cupbearer, a priest. They had different purposes for writing Sometimes it was recording history. Sometimes it was giving spiritual and moral instruction or pronouncing judgment. They composed the works from palaces, prisons, the wilderness, and places of exile while writing history, law, poetry, prophecy, and proverbs. In the process, they laid bare their personal emotions, expressing anger, frustration, joy, and love. Yet despite this marvelous array of topics and goals, the Bible displays a flawless internal consistency. It never contradicts itself or its common theme. This is tested to be God's prophetic word. All right, I know there's Bibles out there. I know that there are some Bibles sitting out here. I know that if you go, I don't have a Bible. I bet if you look underneath one of these chairs, <gasps> look, there's one right here. I want everybody to find a Bible or the person next to you have a Bible. Everybody find a Bible. If you don't have one, Look around. Come on, you can do it. Some of you are like, I have to move my arms? Yes. You find a Bible. You didn't bring one with you. I've got some extras. Anybody need this one? Give you this one. Oh, you have one. Anybody need one? You got one? No? Yeah? You got one next to you? Need one? Take a phone. Oh, that's just the New Testament? Yeah. Yeah, some of them, some of them just has the, the, the New Testament. See if you can find one with the Old Testament as well. All right. I want you to look. In your Bibles, now if you're like, I don't know how to find stuff in the Bible, somebody in here will help you. And I don't want you to be embarrassed and go, oh, I'll find it, and, and just pretend like you're finding it. That's, that's not, no, no, just 
It, look around, and, and can you help me find this? It's okay. I will not critique you. Oh, you guys are cheating, getting on your phones, aren't you? Uh-huh. That's fine, I guess. I'd like you to look at 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. So 2 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to start at verse 16. Um, my, my hope here is with, I've got a couple of these that I want to share with you. My hope here is that as we do this, you will begin to recognize what it's like to hear or read tested prophecy of God, okay? God's revealed word, unlike any other book, is found in this book. 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read from verse 16 to verse 21. This is Peter writing. What was Peter's profession? Fisherman, right? Fisherman. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You know, you know what he's saying here? He's saying... The things I'm telling you about Jesus, I learned those truths by my five senses, okay? That's how, the, that's how those truths were revealed to him. Uh, Christ was the ultimate revelation of who God is. By being here, he just spoke and talked and acted, and he was God so that we knew what God was like. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was uh, born to him by the, majest by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's this. You have access to read what God's Spirit had men write. And I wouldn't be surprised if half of you in this room, every Sunday, brush the dust off and carry it here. You had God's, God's word easily available to you all week. Did you take time? And this isn't even, you don't have to rely on your own testing. This has been tested to be true and reliable. Notice what it says next. The last part of this, hold fast, what is good, is tested, what's been tested, what should we do with it? Hold fast, what is good, abstain from every form of evil. After it's been tested, hold, hold that which is good. You, you know what I heard when I, I read this verse? Hold fast, do what you know, right? Do what you know, hold fast what is good, do the things you know. If it's evil, get, get away from it, do what you know. Start with what you know. All right, let's read another one. Okay, now we're going to go back 
nearly to the beginning. This is the book of Deuteronomy. Way back at the beginning. Who wrote Deuteronomy? Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 29. What was Moses' profession for at least 40 years before he was leading the children of Israel? What did he do? Shepherd, right? Shepherd. Um, before that, when he was in uh, Egypt, some kind of royalty, right? Um, but then he was a shepherd for 40 years, and God brought him back to lead the children of Israel. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed, what you know, things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. I'm gonna read that again because I'm telling you, if you just listen to what that is being said, this is, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know what's being said. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, the stuff that we don't know, that's his. But the things that are revealed belong to us, so the things that he's revealed, that's us, that's ours, we get it, and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Do what you know. Once you go down, same book, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it down to us that, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so you can do it. Literally right now, I'm reading it. It's in our mouths. And as I, I hear it, it's going in, it's in your heart, internalizing it. What for? So you can do these things. But the test of the word of God, will fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Let me do one last one. We're going to go to 2 Timothy, all the way back to the back again. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Chapter 3, we're going to start with verse uh, um, 14. I'm just going to read three verses or... Uh, 4 verses 14 through 17. This is uh, who wrote 2 Timothy. Don't say Timothy. Who wrote 2 Timothy? Paul. Who was he writing to? Oh, come on. You get, that was the easy one. Who was he writing to? Timothy. Um, Paul's profession, he was a scholar was a Pharisee, studied the word. He writes to Timothy, he says, but as, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, 
and how from childhood, this reminds me of what Charity was saying earlier about the, the grandparents that are bringing their... Do you know that happened with, with Timothy? But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you are not a Bible reader, you ought to be, pure and simple. When I originally went to this passage for today and I got to this, the testing, I was starting to go down a route where I was like, because you could talk about how to evaluate and how to test, but Paul doesn't do that here. He says, he says test, but then he didn't say how in this passage, and then it hit me. I have, I believe, many of us in this room today, we have a portion that we know. Let, let's, let's start here. We know this is test. If you're sitting here today and you go, I, I'm not convinced of that. I, I would love to sit down and, and give you some, because I'm, I'm telling you, I, I know I say it all the time, I'm a math teacher, I love facts, cold, hard facts. I want to see the truth. I don't believe things easily. I'm a skeptic, okay? And so I would love to tell you why I hold on to this as truth and why I believe it's been tested to be proven to be God's word. I don't believe that lightly. If you're struggling with that, let me know. I would love to sit down and, and give you some things you could look at, some facts, just facts. I didn't know that about the Bible. I mean, that, like there's literally thousands of ancient copies of the Bible. There's, it's not like they just have a couple of them. There's thousands of them. And they, they've poured over them. There's with intense scrutiny. Well, this 574 of them say this, and 362 of them have this one word difference. And what is the, yeah. <clears throat> which one? Oh, look, they're both. Okay, then we can evaluate. Yeah, this is what was being said all along. We can clearly see. And so they scrutinize it. Every little pin mark of the scripture. People then work, hundreds of people literally, strive to then bring us this translation. Hours upon hours of taking the scriptures from what they have, the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew and Aramaic writings and the, the Greek New Testament and translating it to be as accurate as possible to what the word says. So that when we sit down and open it up and we read it, we, I am convinced we can reliably go, this is God's word for us. So that you can sit down each and every morning, open up this book, Read from it. And the rest of your day go, I heard a word from God this morning. God spoke to me. Don't ignore the supernatural that went into this, up to this point. Okay? And if you're sitting here going, I'd rather God just, you know, like tell me stuff. Frankly, that's insulting 
the, the people who have lived and died to make this available for you to just go, it's not good enough. You're just being lazy. Pick up the book, read it. When you get done, read it again. When you get done, read it again. After that, read it again. You will never learn all that's in here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your tested and tried and true word. I thank you for it. I praise you for it. Pray that you'd help us not to ignore it, but to hold fast what is good and to reject what is evil. Help us to do these things this very week. Give us the the strength, the endurance, the willpower to choose to, to dig into your word. I ask these things now in Christ's name, amen.